Today on Something You Should Know, does anyone really notice when you have a bad hair day or your clothes don't look just right? Then we'll examine all the things that influence how much you eat, and you will be amazed. We did something with secretaries where we put candies on their desk or we put them six feet from the desk and we found that the average secretary ended up eating 125 more calories if the candy was right on their desk than if it was just six feet away. We know over the course of the year that's over 12 pounds. Plus, just how clean are those coffee mugs in the office kitchen? And how to handle life's catastrophes, no matter what your friends say. Most people in your life are just trying to make you feel better and saying everything's going to be okay, don't worry, it's not that big of a deal, it's not so bad. And the fact is that it is big of a deal, it is so bad, and it might not be okay, and we still have to be able to figure out how to deal with it. All this today on Something You Should Know. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome. We start today with something I think everyone has experienced. It's when you have a bad hair day or something about your clothes isn't right, there's a button missing, or maybe there's a little tiny stain on there from something, that, and you think that everybody is going to notice this. Well, it turns out they don't. And to prove it, researchers asked 44 college students to walk into a classroom of fellow students while wearing a t-shirt that had either an embarrassing or flattering image. The students wearing the embarrassing shirts thought that they stuck out like a sore thumb, but that actually wasn't the case. Once the subjects left, the majority of the students in the room could not recall the image on the shirts that they were wearing. Researchers concluded that people overestimate how much others notice about their appearance, both positively and negatively, and that the social spotlight doesn't shine on you as much as you think. People are a lot less judgmental about your flaws than you probably realize. What's probably going on is they're more worried about what you think of their flaws. And that is something you should know. One of my favorite topics is food. I love food. I love to eat it. I love to cook it. I like to talk about it. Although we don't talk a lot about food on this podcast, except in terms of health and what you should and shouldn't eat. And it's not like we're going to be sharing recipes here anytime soon. But what does work for this podcast, and is such a fascinating topic, is the psychology of food. Why do you eat what you eat? Why do you eat it when you eat it? And why do you eat as much or as little as you do? Dr. Brian Wansick joins me to discuss this. He is the director of the Food and Brand Lab at Cornell University, and author of the book, Slim by Design, Mindless Eating Solutions for Everyday Life. Brian was here a few years ago, and I've asked him back to continue this discussion because it's such a universal topic. I mean, we all eat. Hey, Brian, good to have you back. So so a good place to start might be to consider how many food choices a person makes in a day. It's amazing. The typical person believes they make about 15 decisions about food a day. In reality, they make well over 200. I mean, even if we just look at breakfast, uh, before a person sits down, they pretty much decide 
what cereal, cereal they're going to have. They decide whether they're going to put fruit on it or not, whether they're going to have one bowl or two bowls, whether they're going to fill it up or two-thirds full, whether they're going to put skim milk or whole milk. There's 12 decisions that are made before a person even sits down. This follows us through the entire day, and the problem is, because we're not aware of these 200 small decisions we make, we're very easily influenced by the cues around us and some of the things in our environment. Well, I think everybody believes that because we've all been influenced at some time or another to eat things that we might not otherwise eat. And and certainly people who struggle with their weight know that they're often influenced to eat things they shouldn't eat and eat too much of it. Well, what's interesting is if you take somebody and say, hey, why do you overeat? Most people would say, I mean, other than, you know, maybe emotions or something like that, they'd say, well, I overeat when I'm really, really hungry or I overeat when the food is really, really good. We did a study where we actually took people who were full and we gave them food that was terrible and we looked to see if we could get them to eat more just by changing the cues. And what we did was we took them to a, uh, we took people who were going to a, a, a movie theater. This is down in Philadelphia. Who had just finished eating dinner? We gave them huge buckets of popcorn or medium-sized buckets of popcorn that were 14 days old. The popcorn didn't even crunch; it was like styrofoam. And what we found is, even though the people hated the popcorn as they watched the movie, they just continued to eat popcorn. By the time the movie was over, the people with the huge buckets had eaten about 35 percent more. Because what is is it just because you're at the movies? When you're at the movies, you you eat popcorn, and there's the popcorn, so you eat it even though it's horrible. But movie theater means eat popcorn, and so that's what people do. And I remember when you were here last time; it was episode 115. If people want to go back and listen, you talked about the amazing variety of things that influence what we eat and how much we eat, like the the size of the plate and the the lighting in the room and the music in the room, and all of that has a real impact. And what's interesting about this is even after you show them how the environment influences them, whether it be the size of a bowl or plate or whether it be the variety of food or the shape of a glass or the lighting in the room or who they're eating with, every time you show them how much they're influenced, to a person... People will deny it. They'll say, oh, well, uh, no, you know, really, um, I was really, really hungry today. Yeah, that's why I happen to eat so much. That's what makes this so dangerous. It's because we don't want to believe that we're, we can be tricked by something as simple as whether the candy dish is on our desk versus six feet from our desk. We did something with secretaries where we put the candies on their desk or we put them six feet from their desk, and every single day we found that the average secretary ended up eating 25, 125 more calories if the candy was right on their desk than if it was just six feet away. I mean, over the course of the year, that's over 12 pounds. Talk about how words are used, and what I mean is how words on a menu or words on a package or a label will get us to buy something and maybe buy more of it and eat more of it. Well, one thing that happens a lot is, is our taste buds are incredibly suggestive, um, you, you know that when you eat with a friend or some of the friends says, oh, man, this is, this is really a tremendous appetizer. Here, here, you have to try some. We almost never try and go, no, you're wrong. That's terrible. <laughs> our taste buds almost always fall in line with what our expectations are. So if we think it's going to be great, it is great. And this is one of the biggest things that, that restaurants end up doing to influence us is they, 
um, often have very evocative, descriptive names for their items. And so we did a study, for instance, where we used restaurant menus. We, we either called something a plain name like, you know, um, seafood filet, or we gave it a very descriptive name like, you know, succulent Italian seafood filet. Now, in reality, in both these cases, it was just pretty much a dried fish stick. <laughs> but, but if people believe they're eating what was a succulent Italian seafood filet, they rated the food as tasting better, they rated the restaurant as better, and they were more likely to claim that the chef had some European culinary training. And all we did was change two words. There's actually good news to this <laughs> if you're a home cook. If you, uh, instead of just kind of plopping the salad and the uh, the entree down at home to your family, if you give a little bit of a description as to what it is or how you made it, what it does is it increases our expectations of what it's going to taste like and the taste buds of whoever's your guest for dinner, whether it be family or friends, are going to obediently fall in line with what your expectations are. What about presentation? Uh, A lot of restaurants go to a lot of effort to plate the food and make it look pretty and all that. Does does that have an effect on the person eating it? It has a tremendous impact on not only how much we eat, but how good we think the food is. And it's the same expectation thing. Um, we, we did a study where we gave people uh, a, a brownie either on a nice piece of china or on a napkin and asked them to rate the flavor and to rate how much it cost and or how much they'd be willing to pay for it and things like this. And if people ate the brownie on the napkin, which was the exact same brownies as was given to another group of people in this nice china, they said, oh, yeah, this brownie on the napkin, yeah, it's, it tastes okay. How much would you be willing to pay for it? Oh, about 57 cents. When a person was instead given it on a nice piece of china, we said, what do you think? They go, oh, this is really, really good. How much would you pay for it? This is like about a dollar twenty. It was the exact same brownie, but simply the presentation of that brownie led people's expectations to be higher, and those expectations led them to taste what they thought they would taste, which is a really good, classy brownie. Boy, you really hate to think you're that suggestible, that that these kind of things really can influence you. And, And you would think, too, that just knowing that would make you a little more bulletproof to it, but maybe not. And that's what makes these things so powerful. I mean, I've been studying this stuff for 20 years, and it influences me on a daily basis. And the only way that i found to kind of reduce the impact is to just re-engineer my environment so I don't eat mindlessly. So we have pretty much everybody in the lab at home, you know, has moved the candy dish, has replaced the cookie bowl with a fruit bowl. We've trans-changed short wide glasses. We've got rid of them and put in tall skinny glasses. We've made all these own changes in our own home, and uh, it's pretty much the only way to fight this. Because, you know, who wants to go through life saying, oh, hey, i got to remember not to take extra candy because it's sitting on my desk. I'm speaking with Brian Wansink. He is the director of the Food and Brand Lab at Cornell University and author of the book Slim by Design. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on something you should know. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. A shout-out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, for as long as I can remember, I have had to deal with seasonal allergies. Stuffy nose, watery eyes, the whole deal. And the worst for me is it messes up my sleep. I wake up because I can't breathe right. And during the day, well, you know, if I'm working and I'm all stuffed up, then my voice sounds weird, and this is how I make my living. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. I use it, and if you struggle with allergies, you should too. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been using Claritin D for years because, well, just it takes care of the problem. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. So, Brian, explain the experiment you did with the never-ending soup bowl. Well, one thing we found over and over again, that people eat with their eyes. They don't eat with their stomach. We don't really know when we're full. We dish out what we think we're going to eat or what's going to make us full, and then we pretty much eat till it's gone. That way we can kind of focus on who we're eating with or the newspaper or the radio or the television, whatever's going on. And we did a study to say, well, what happens if your plate never empties? How much longer would you keep eating before you finally decide to stop? And we <laughs> set up this, this refillable soup bowl that had a – we had drilled a hole through a table and this is the bottom of the bowl and put some – food-grade tubing that connected the bowl, bottom of the bowl, to a, to a big pot, six-quart pot of soup in, a, in another room. And what happened was we found that when we brought people in for, for a soup lunch, over the course of that lunch, they would end up eating about 73% more from a refillable bowl than the people who instead just were given a normal-sized bowl of soup. What's so crazy about this is that after they're finished, we, we got ratings of how, of how full they felt, of how many calories they thought they ate, of how much they thought they'd eat uh, for the rest of the day. There's no difference between them and the people eating on the normal bowl, even though they ate 73% more. 
mean, some people ate a quart more. The thing is, out of sight is out of mind. If we've, we've eaten it and it's gone, we don't remember that it's gone. The key thing to do is to see this food before we eat it. In the case of, let's say, chips and candy, instead of eating right out of the bag, just pour it out in a bowl. At least at one point, before you get started eating, you're going to see how much you're going to eat, and it's going to lead you to eat less. We, we find it's about 20 to 25% less, usually. I know I heard or read, and maybe it was from you I heard this, that when people eat what's considered healthy food, because it's healthy, they tend to eat more of it. One thing that goes on whenever it comes to healthy foods is that healthy foods are surrounded with a health halo. And what this leads us to do is two very bad things. First of all, we, we underestimate the number of calories we eat, but second, we, ended up, we end up overeating that amount of food. So let's say we take uh, like low-fat snacks or low-fat candy. For the most part, people when it comes to low-fat snacks and candy, they tend to be on average of about 10 to 15% lower in calories because what they do is they replace the fat with more sugar, okay? But most people think they're about 40 to 50% lower in calories. And so as a result, people tremendously overeat anything that says low-fat on it. And after the smoke clears, they've ended up eating about 20% more total calories from a lot of low-fat snacks than we find they do for normal-weight snacks. And um, this health halo also follows you when you go eat lunch. You know, you go to a place that might be a, a sub-sandwich place or something. You kind of go, oh, yeah, this is, this, this is healthy for me. No French fries, none of those trans fat things. Well, as a result, we find that people will eat about 700 calories there on an average lunch. But they think they ate about 450. They just don't realize that the mayonnaise they put on it wasn't, zero calories, there wasn't zero calories to the cheese, there wasn't zero calories to the potato chips, there wasn't zero calories to the <laughs> cookies they ate to reward themselves for eating good. This is where those healthy foods backfire. We underestimate the calories and we overeat the food. Something I've always wondered is how much of how we learned to eat and what we ate and what we liked and all that growing up, how much of that influences what we eat as adults? Well, you know, it influences us in a whole bunch of different ways. I mean, the socialization of food ends up starting with uh, the nutritional gatekeeper. I mean, as parents, it's incredible the impact that we have over children, regardless of whether we acknowledge it or not. What we find is that the typical uh, parent influences 72% of the eating and food decisions their child makes. And this nutritional gatekeeper can either influence them for better or for worse. They can influence them for the better if they end up bringing the good stuff home and they end up giving them money to get a certain type of lunch rather than any type of lunch when they're at school. They end up influencing them when they go out to eat as a family based on what they order. And these eating habits end up following people around, um, following people for, for some time. I mean, one of the things that was found in, in, in one study was that people will frequently ask, um, you've know, got a they've got a ten year old son. He's uh, a little bit a little bit husky. Is, is it baby fat or is he overweight? What we find is that uh, what other researchers rather have found is that if people are um, if a child's overweight at this at this age, and their parent is overweight, there's a seventy three percent chance that child's going to grow up to be overweight. So, if a person's trying to figure out whether it's 
babies that are real fat. Um, you got to check your own tummy. You would think, though, that if you know this, if you really understand that you are being influenced by all these factors, words on a menu, uh, everything else that you've talked about, knowing that would help you protect yourself and so that you wouldn't be so susceptible to these tactics. What goes on in most of our lives is we've got way too many things to think about on a day-to-day basis to be you know, obsessing about um, whether there's too much variety and it's causing us to eat more, whether the lights are too low and it's causing us to overeat, or whether having family-sized servings on the table is causing us to eat three servings versus two servings if we're in the other room. The better thing to do is just to set up our environment, to re-engineer our home so that instead of mindlessly overeating, we can mindlessly enjoy food more and, and eat less. And simply taking these steps, the changing the bowls, not putting serving dishes on the, um, on the table. But that, that's a pretty common family-style practice at the dinner table to have bowls or plates of food to take servings from. Well, what, what tends to happen is when people end up eating family style is everybody waits until the last person's done, and then, you know, they, they finish together. Well, if somebody's a fast eater, what happens is there's a tendency to continue to eat till, and to pace yourself till the last person finishes, which can mean seconds, and it can mean thirds of a lot of items on the table. Instead, convenience, or rather inconvenience, makes it tremendously difficult to overeat. And so what we suggest is putting the, the starches and the, the main entrees, the heavier things, don't serve them family style, but pre-plate them and just leave them in the kitchen on the stove or on the counter. And if somebody wants seconds or, seconds or thirds, they can certainly go up and go get it, but they're not going to be getting seconds, thirds, and fourths just because it's mindlessly in front of them. Explain how dim lighting makes you overeat. You know, one thing about dim lighting is it causes us to pay a lot less attention to what's going on. And, you know, subconsciously, you almost feel like what's going on is we're kind of hidden and the things we do kind of in this dim lighting or in the dark uh, uh, don't even really count. And so what we find is when this lighting is this, this way, not only do people end up spending longer on average eating, but they also spend, a, spend eating more, but estimate and believe they ate less than they actually do. That wow. doesn't mean that we have to turn on fluorescent lights or spotlights on us when we eat. But what it does mean is that we need to be extra careful that we don't have all these other cues leading us to eat more. We need to make sure if we're at home, we're not eating family style. If we're at a restaurant, we need to make sure that we use the rule of two, which is in addition to the entree, we can have either an appetizer, piece of bread, a drink, or dessert, but we, we can have any two of those. We can't have all four. Well, it is interesting to look and see how, uh, obviously, some people are more susceptible to these influencing factors than others because some people are skinny and it seems to come fairly easy to them and other people are heavy and struggle with that, perhaps because they're being influenced by all these things you're talking about. And, and it, it, it's, it's kind of depressing. But it, it's, it's also really somewhat encouraging because... Making some of these small changes, let's say just making two changes that result in us eating 100 calories less every day is going to make us 20 pounds lighter in a year than we'd otherwise be. So that's, that's the good news. Well, and it's at least good to know 
what's going on, to have the information about how you're being influenced, I think it just seems like that would help you protect yourself. Dr. Brian Wansink has been my guest. He's the director of the Food and Brand Lab at Cornell University and author of a couple of books, including Slim by Design, Mindless Eating Solutions for Everyday Life. And there is a link to that book in the show notes. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. There will be times in your life when things fall apart, all hell breaks loose. Sometimes are worse than other times, but bad things do happen, life gets messy, and how you react when these bad things happen has a lot to do with how things turn out in the end. So it pays to think about how you will handle these inevitable detours in life. Here to offer some very practical help is Sarah Knight. Sarah describes herself as a writer, editor, and recovering perfectionist. She's author of a book called Calm the F Down, How to Control What You Can, Accept What You Can't, So You Can Stop Freaking Out and Get On With Your Life. Hi, Sarah. Welcome. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. So I've noticed that when things go wrong, when things go wrong in my life, the reaction you get from other people is to often minimize it. Whatever happened isn't so bad. And it's said, I know it's said with the intent of comforting, but it also often kind of misses the point. Yeah. And, you know, what what I started out with was the premise that most people in your life are just trying to make you feel better and saying everything's going to be okay. Don't worry. It's not that big of a deal. It's not so bad when something happens to stress you out. And the fact is that it is big of a deal. It is so bad and it might not be okay. And we still have to be able to figure out how to deal with it. So dive in with some examples here of what, what you're talking about. Well, so, you know, it can be anything from work to family and relationships. I'm worried that I'm going to have an ugly baby to there's a Category 5 hurricane bearing down on my home. What am I going to do about that? Um, it's, it's a very wide spectrum, and the idea is to give a universal toolkit to deal with all different kinds of problems. And the main question that I ask is what I call the one question to rule them all, can I control it? And if you can, then there are ways to move forward and calm yourself down and deal with whatever's happening. And if you can't, you have to be able to let it go. Well, if there's a hurricane bearing down on your house, you can't just go, well, nothing I can do. No, you know, hurricanes are hurricanes. So you got to do something. 
Exactly. And I call that productive, helpful, effective worrying, which has a great acronym that goes along with it. Um, And that's when you batten down the hatches and you prepare as best you can and you mitigate the eventual damage from whatever it is that's about to happen to you. You know, you certainly can't control the direction of the wind, but you can control how relatively safe and secure your home and your family are before something like that happens. And the same thing goes for You know, if you work in an industry where it's clear that layoffs are happening, um, you're not going to be able to ultimately control whether the bean counters upstairs decide that your job is or is not valuable to them. But you can start preparing financially, emotionally um, for an eventuality and be that much more able to deal with the, the bad circumstances that arise from it. Even with all the preparation for the inevitable catastrophe that might happen, It does seem that some people handle it better than others and other people, even though they've prepared, when when the bad thing happens, they don't deal with it well. Well, I refer to this as the what ifs. Um, This is something I'm intimately familiar with and probably a lot of your listeners are too. And it starts with very innocent, well, what if this happens? What if this doesn't work out the way I want it to? What if so-and-so thinks such and such about something that I do? And then when you keep focusing on it and you don't take action, it keeps piling up and piling up in your brain. And suddenly you have this swirling collection of what ifs that drive you into what I call freak out mode. And that could be anxiety. It could be sadness, anger, avoidance. These are the sort of four overarching categories of freaking out. And I really think that it all has to, it all comes down to action. And if you don't take action, then you're going to wind up, you know, just in that frame of mind and not be able to get out of it. And so how do you deal with all those what ifs that start piling up in your head? Okay. So for example, for me, I tend toward anxiety and, uh, I would say that the, the biggest, most toxic outcome of anxiety is overthinking. And it's what I just described about, you start to think about one thing that might go wrong and it, it, gathers steam in your head and then suddenly you're thinking about 10 different things that could go wrong. So one of the techniques is called give anxiety the finger. Um, And what it means is focus on something hands-on that you can do that just calms your brain and distracts your brain from all of the overthinking it's doing. So all of the things that I talk about are really offshoots of cognitive behavioral therapy, um, actual scientifically proven uh, therapy and, and whatnot to get you through anxiety, but I give it in a slightly edgier, fun tone. So for me, when I'm sitting around my house in the Dominican Republic feeling anxious about something, I often get up and get a pair of uh, kitchen scissors and go prune this gigantic papyrus bush in my yard, which is extremely calming and helps me narrow my focus to one very specific, very hands-on, mindless task that gets me out of that mode of anxious freaking out. Well, I like that because you're basically distracting yourself. And I think so often people get in that state where they they just compound in their own head the problem and it swirls around with nothing to contradict or have another point of view. And what you're talking about, about, about trimming the bush, breaks that cycle because you're distracted by doing something else. 
Yeah. And there are other things, you know, there are other people who are more prone to different kinds of freaking out. Um, some people tend to get really angry. They just go from zero to 60 on the anger scale and they need to be able to get to what I call the flip side of the four faces of freaking out. And for anger, that's peace. You need to be able to get to a point of peacefulness. And one of the ways to do that is visualization. And like I said before, a lot of other um, self-help gurus and whatnot talk about meditation and mindfulness and all of that. I'm a little bit less traditional, <laughs> but it all comes from the same place, which is if you find yourself very angry, as my husband once did when we were in the Mexico City airport and I didn't have a seat assignment for our flight home, you need to avoid Mexican airport syndrome, which is when you freak out and upset the very people who are able to help you get your wife on the plane. <laughs> so I say, take a minute, visualize. What's it going to be like if we're both stranded in Mexico City airport jail for the next 48 hours because you lost control and decided to get angry at the at the flight attendant or the gate check agent? And if you take just one minute to visualize the consequences, you will typically realize that you are headed down a path of no return. You're about to make your problem worse. You really need to stop being so angry and come to a point of peace. Well, I think that's brilliant because who hasn't been in their version of Mexican airport jail where you're so upset and you're so angry and your world seems to fall apart that you end up getting mad at the exact people who have the power to help you? Yeah. And I, and I'd say that, you know, if the worst outcome of anxiety is overthinking, the worst outcome of anger is making your problem worse. Um, and, and avoidance is another one of the modes of freaking out. And that means never, ever solving your problem because you're not doing anything about it. So I call that ostrich mode. Uh, and I'm guilty of that sometimes as well. And you just need to be able to take one tiny little action, uh, toward reversing your situation. Just one little bit. Um, and that tends to make people feel accomplished. And then they realize, oh, okay, I can do this. And then they take another small action and then another one. Um, and I like to say that one of the ways to avoid avoidance is to bargain with yourself and say, okay, if I'm avoiding balancing my checkbook and I'm avoiding making a doctor's appointment because I don't want to find out that I'm in the red in my bank account or that I have some terrible malady uh, that my dermatologist tells me about, I'm only allowed to avoid one of those things. So pick one, and then you have to do the other one. <laughs> well, then then you might end up being anxious, uh, and that takes you back to the other thing, and now you're really screwed. This is true, but if you bring your knitting and you engage in giving anxiety the finger, then you can sit in the doctor's office and keep your mind off of your anxiety by doing something with your hands. What's the other one? Weren't, aren't there four modes? Yes, sadness. So clearly the flip side to being sad is being happy. Um, but what I, you know, what I tend to think of sadness as is, is exhaustion. And what, what would you do for a friend who was in that space, whether they were, you know, maybe they're grieving, maybe they've lost their job, you know, what, what would you do? You would be kind to them. And so you need to be kind to yourself. And uh, so one of the tips that I have is called, you know, treat yourself. And literally it means send yourself some flowers, buy yourself a candy bar, uh, run yourself a hot bath, you know, do the kinds of things for yourself that you would do for someone else who was very sad. Because we tend to forget uh, when, especially we're in, when we're in the middle of a freak out, that we are our own best friends. We are our own um 
you know, we, we have to look out for number one. Nobody else is put on this earth to do it for us. And so I think that people really need to make sure that they recognize, um, you know, the situations that they find themselves in and treat themselves the way they would treat other people in those situations. One of the things that seems to run through all four of those things is when, when you're freaking out in one of those four ways, uh, your brain cannot possibly work in a, in a way that's going to help. I mean, it's, it's as if the good part of your brain kind of shuts down because the other, these things take over. Yeah, I think it's the difference between having an emotional reaction and having a logical reaction. And what I try to deal with is logic, reason, and being rational about things. And, you know, I'm not here to minimize your emotions. I'm not here to tell you not to have them. You do need to experience emotions. You need to get through them to get past them. But, um, I talk about what I call emotional puppy crating, which is the idea that emotions are like puppies. They're very distracting. They can be good. They can be bad. You know, you can be having fun with them or they can be peeing on your carpet. Either way, you can't get anything done with a puppy running around. Um, And you really can't deal with the stressor that has happened to you if you are overly focused on your emotional reaction. So you need to have it. You need to let it run around and tire itself out just like a puppy. And then pick it up by the mental scruff of the neck and put it in a mental crate while you deal with the situation at hand. So how do you let it run around and tire itself out? You, you know, you give it some time. You acknowledge your sadness. You acknowledge your panic. You acknowledge your anger. And you say, okay, what is the outcome if I continue indulging in this set of emotions? And then you recognize, well, that is not a very good outcome. I guess it's time for me to take these emotions and put them over to the side and start working on solutions. Right. I, I was hoping you would say that because it's one thing to stop freaking out, but then it's another thing to solve the problem that you're freaking out about. So uh, how do you go about doing that once you've stopped the freaking out process? So the first thing is that you have to take stock. And I compare it to landing in enemy territory. You only have a short period of time to say, where am I? What just happened? What's the most likely way for me to get out of this unscathed or as, as unscathed as possible? The second is what I call your Rio, your realistic ideal outcome. And it's very important that you be honest with yourself about what is realistic, both what's realistic uh, that you can't control and what's within your control that's realistic. And then what's ideal. And that's different for different people. You know, somebody who's in a relationship and they get cheated on, maybe their realistic ideal outcome is to work through it and remain with that person. Somebody else might say, you know what, I got to get out of this. I got to pack up my stuff and move out and end this relationship. It's all about what's realistic and ideal for you. And then the third part of dealing with it is triage. And it's just a fancy word for prioritizing, which is at the core of all of the advice I give. And that's you saying, okay, what's the most likely thing that I can fix the soonest? And starting there. I really like to prioritize based on urgency. I find that that's the best way to get the right things done because you can't get everything done at once and you can't do everything first. So getting the most efficient and effective things done first is the way to go. All of this makes sense as we talk about it in this calm and very reasonable discussion. I think what, what often happens is that when you're in the moment of freaking out, when, when you're really having trouble calming down, th- th- then this is hard to do. 
Exactly. And I try to tell people that, you know, again, I'm giving you tools that you can hopefully use when you wind up in that moment again, because it's all just common sense. It really is. I don't have magic solutions and incantations and and potions to suddenly make life, you know, 100% easier than it really is. It's not easy, but it is simple. And that's the message that I'm always trying to tell people. Yes, this might not be as easy as you want it to be because life isn't easy. But these are simple steps. These are take stock, identify your realistic ideal outcome, triage. Um, it's really not, the, the concepts themselves are not that complicated. But do you have a, a suggestion or two or three for when you're in the moment to be able to divert yourself into this rather than go where you're more likely to go? I talk about uh, naming your tarantulas, and there's a story I tell about the first tarantula, a literal actual tarantula that I encountered in my in my home here in the Dominican Republic and how it sent me off the deep end. And then when it came back, I said, oh, okay, I've been here before. The, the thing did not jump at me. It did not growl at me. It's much smaller than me. All right, okay, I've I've seen how this goes. We've had a dress rehearsal. Now I know what to do with it. And I recommend that people do that with all of their problems when they find themselves really anxious or they find themselves wallowing in sadness or they find themselves um, hiding in the house, avoiding their problems to say, what are my tarantulas? You know, what are they really? They're not just these um, omnipresent shadows in the corner. There is a reason why I feel this way. Name it. And once you name it, then you can start doing something about it. I can imagine people hearing you say that and think, well, you know, she's a very calm, reasonable person, but, but that's not me. I'm, you know, I, I, I get worked up and I, I can't do, I can't do that. That's not me. That's not who I am. I really reject that notion. And I, I just think that there's a lot more to, uh, your reaction to stress and anxiety than that's just who I am. And maybe I'm saying that because I'm somebody who's been dealing with severe anxiety and panic disorder for, I mean, really my whole life, but I identified it about 10 years ago. And so I've done the work, you know, I've gone to the doctors, I've done the journaling, I've done the deep breathing. I once filled a, a cat litter box with sand and put it under my desk at work so that I could take off my shoes and put my feet in the sand because doing that is a comfort to me. I've done all of this stuff. And so I reject the notion that, well, I'm just an anxious person and nothing can be done. Things can be done. I mean, I'm proof that they can be done. And that's what I'm trying to help other people realize is that there are ways. Well, this is is good to hear. It's empowering, I think, because so often when problems arise, things go bad, the catastrophe strikes, we revert to the old ways of doing things, and, and maybe there's a better way to do it. It takes a little effort, but, uh, but there is a better, more productive way to deal with these things that leads to a better outcome. My guest has been Sarah Knight. The book is called Calm the F Down, How to Control What You Can, Accept What You Can't, so you can stop freaking out and get on with your life. There's a link to her book at Amazon in the show notes. Have you ever been at work, needed a coffee mug, found one sitting in the sink, wiped it out, rinsed it out, and then used it? Uh Uh-oh. I used to do that all the time when I worked at radio stations and had to be there late at night or very early in the morning. I would just grab a cup and use it. And most people tend to be pretty casual about coffee mug cleanliness. 
But Dr. Charles Gerba, a microbiologist at the University of Arizona, says mugs have been tested and 90% of them are covered with germs. 20% even tested positive for fecal matter. Uh, I can't even begin to imagine how that happens. Most office kitchenettes don't have a dishwasher and mugs are washed by hand with the community sponge that never gets cleaned. And whether you're at home or at work, if a mug has traces of that coffee ring on the inside, consider that a filthy ring of bacteria. If you have a favorite commuting mug, be sure to run it through the dishwasher every day. Bacteria thrives in dark, warm places, and rinsing out a coffee mug isn't enough. And that is something you should know. That's the podcast today. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.